Good morning, everybody. Apparently, I'm supposed to say Happy Father's Day, so one last time, Happy Father's Day, everybody. My name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here on staff as well. And um, when, in our family, I know we, you realize this doesn't happen very much anymore where families all sit down and watch shows together. Uh, in the new era, we all have our own devices and we watch shows throughout the house, whatever we want. But not Kate and I. We said, listen, we need to have a family show. And you can judge me or not, but our family show we picked was Survivor. And we love Survivor and we watch as a family. And uh, it's incredible. In this last season, we were watching it. It was, uh, I forget what the, the little catchy phrase was, but we watched the whole thing. It was great. And, uh, and we're watching Survivor. And uh, near the end, there's this interaction. This is Brad Culpepper and, uh, on, on your left and this guy Ty on the right. Now, Brad Culpepper, he was a football player. He's huge. He's strong. He's intimidating. He's a competitor. He is like a man's man. He's a, just a stud muffin. And Ty, right, he's a little short Asian guy who is gentle and kind. There was one they were going to kill chickens to eat him. He's like, no. Like, he's so gentle and kind. And this interaction that happened right here uh, was near the end of Survivor. And what happens is Brad is like, he's in charge of the game, and he's trying to get Ty to be on his team, and he just crushes him. He uses all of his power and leverage to basically stand over Ty and go, listen, Ty, you need to be on my team. And, uh, and this interaction's happening, and we're all watching Survivor like it's no big deal, except all of a sudden my son goes, whoa, he's like you, Dad. <laughs> At first I'm like, like Brad Culpepper, but I know that's not what he meant. He meant, oh my goodness, you are the big, strong person in our family, and you leverage all of your power and all of your strength to make us kind, soft-hearted, gentle people do whatever you want, and it sucks. <laughs> I'm like, awesome. Thanks for that, son. And, um, and so when I think about Father's Day, I was thinking, man, let's just be honest. I think all of us have daddy issues. Like there's this weird thing that our parents above us, they have power, they have authority, they have control. And as kids, we have none of it. And uh, a lot of times that gets sideways and it just sends people off in really messed up trajectories. And, uh, and we have this joke in our family, but it's not really a joke because it's true. We are saving for our kids and they, that money is either gonna go towards college or towards therapy. Like, we're just like, you choose, you get to be 18, and you just think, what's going to be the best use of that money? Well, this morning, we're going to look at, at, a, at a father and son that um, are so dysfunctional. I mean, horrifically so. And their pride and their rebellion has caused them to be the most dark it's just the most darkest story in all of Scripture. I didn't think it was that dark. I picked it, and as I studied, I was like, oh my goodness, this is awful. So I hope that you're ready. Um, but as I was reading the story over and over again, I, I thought of three things. I hope that this morning, this message brings you comfort. I hope that it nudges you towards some correction. And mostly, I hope that it offers you some hope for redemption. Now, I hope that offers you comfort because you're going to think, man, my family of origin is so dysfunctional. It's not that dysfunctional. Right? We love comparing, and you're going to look at the story, and hopefully no one in this room goes, okay, it's that bad, because this is messed up. So you find some comfort. I also hope that you actually find some correction. All week I've been studying this passage going, oh my goodness, God, you have so much for me to learn, to be corrected on, to be changing. I don't want to leverage my power and my authority in my family system or in my church system in any way that crushes people. And so, God, I want to be open to whatever you might have for me. And mostly that I hope that you find hope for redemption and restoration, because all of these daddy issues, all these parental issues that we have, I think that those issues are so big because God, we're formed in God's image, and God has given us an, just an internal desire to be deeply connected to Him. He is our heavenly parent, and He longs to have intimacy with us. And so when our earthly parents mess that up, right, 
we're not satisfied with that. And that's a, that's a marker that goes that we are made for something more. We're made for a whole relationship. And so all of whatever dis- dysfunction you may have in your life, in your family system of origin, just know that that all is pointing to this God who longs to bring hope and redemption. All right, you ready for this? Yeah, it's going to be great. All right, so open your Bibles to 2 Samuel. It's all the way in the Old Testament. And we're going to start in a verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 6. And we're going to start at the end of the story, and then we'll work our way backwards. But a little bit of context. This story is about David, King David. He's the king of Israel, like David and Goliath, right? That's the David we're talking about. He, uh, he's finally king. He's been king a long time. His, his empire has expanded. He's an old man. He is the man, right? He is incredible. And, uh, and he has a, a number of kids. Uh, his oldest kid is this guy named Abnon. I mean, Abnon. And, uh, and his third kid is Absalom. And Absalom, at this point, Abnon, Abnon, that guy, he's dead. Absalom is, uh, is in line to be king. Uh, but for the last 10 years, him and his dad have been on this collision course of dysfunction. They have, like, they have this break in the relationship, and for 10 years, they've been moving farther and farther and farther apart until we get to this point where Absalom's like, you know what? I want to be king now, and I'm going to full-on rebel, and I'm going to try to take the kingdom from my dad. And so he, he has this uprising, and it goes after his dad, and his poor dad's like, I'm the king. You don't come after me like that. And he sends out his army, and that's where we find ourselves. So here we are, chapter 18, verse 6. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and Israel's the name for Absalom's people. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great. Twenty thousand men died in this battle. The battle spread over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom, this is David's third son, happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under a thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree, and he was left hanging in midair while the mule was riding and kept on going. It was so funny, early in the story, there's all this, like, Absalom was this handsome guy and had beautiful hair. He only cut it once a year because it was so heavy, and that sucker vain guy, right? He goes and he gets, gets stuck in a tree, and, and Google image Absalom in a tree, and there's all these weird paintings of, of a guy with his hair. I don't know how it all worked, but that's what happened. His head is lodged in this tree, and he's dangling there. Now, Joab, Joab is David's like main general. He's the top of his military. Joab said to the men, oh, sorry. So one of the men said what happened. He says, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. So Joab said to the man who had told him this, what? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? And then I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt, right? Because Absalom's leading this rebellion against King David. And so here he is ready to be killed. He's like, why didn't you kill him? Well, the, 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 the servant says this, but the man replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishishi, I guess, and Atai, uh, to protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. So basically this guy is saying, listen, this is the king's son. The king even told us in his presence I know my, my, my son's a rebel. I know he's starting this uprising. But whatever you can do, please, please, please spare his life. And uh, so these guys had an opportunity to kill him. They said, listen, the king said, don't kill him. Joab's like, what? Are you kidding me? So Joab takes matters into his own hand. Verse 14, Joab said, well, I'm not going to walk like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand, plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And then 10 of, J- of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. The word of the Lord. Okay, that's the end of the story. And you realize right away 
there is this awful trajectory between David and Absalom. Absalom has wrecked his, uh, his empire. And yet, even in the most rebellious, violent moment, King David, his heart was for restoration and, uh, and reconciliation. Um, but at that point, Joab's like, no, he matters in his own hand and kills him. Well, that's the end of the story. And when what's interesting is the beginning of the story is even worse. Okay, so we're, that's the end. Now we're going to start at the beginning because how in the world do you just end up in a place where all of a sudden your son uh, takes matters in his own hand, does an uprising, tries to take all of your money, your wealth, and your power, and ends up getting killed in the process. Well, that didn't just happen in a vacuum. It actually happened 10 years earlier or so. So 10 years earlier, and so if you have uh, your Bible, skip, excuse me, skim all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter uh, 11, and that's where we're going to start the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story actually doesn't involve Absalom at all. It involves David. David's an older man at this point, right? He's, he's battled. He owns his kingdom. He is the man. And, uh, and he's tired and old. And so it's spring. All of his armies go off to war. David's like, you know what? I'm too tired this year. I'm not going off to war. I'm going to stay at home. And he stays at home and he's bored and he's wandering around. You know the story. It's my favorite story in all the Bible, right? And he goes and he looks on the rooftops and he sees Bathsheba, this beautiful woman, uh, bathing. And he's like, yes, she's awesome. And so he's like, I'm the king. I can do what I want. And so he sends a servant to Bathsheba's house, sends Bathsheba over, and he sleeps with her. And I'm pretty sure Bathsheba wasn't like, oh, this is so cool. I get to sleep with the king. Right? I mean, he sexually assaults this woman and, and ends up getting her pregnant. That's the beginning of the story. It is brutal. And you think, how is that the beginning of the story? Well, what happens is David um, sleeps with Bathsheba and gets her pregnant and ends up killing her husband. Like, it's this whole thing. Like, it's better than Netflix. This whole story is just bonkers. And, um, and it goes on to say, so, um, and the reason why this is bonkers is because this moment that happened in David's life immediately erased all the moral authority that David had for his kingdom. So when we engage in sin, when we engage in private sin, in public sin, all of a sudden, all the moral fortitude, all the moral authority, all the opportunity to stand up and say, this is right and this is wrong, goes out the window, right? When my mom and stepdad got divorced, all of a sudden, they had no say in my life, right? They're working out of their own garbage, and I'm like, you have nothing to say to me. You can't can't work out your junk. I'm going to do whatever I want. Now, a little bit older and, and getting the whole story, I'm like, oh my goodness, that was a really complex thing. I did not get the whole thing for sure. But for those of you who've experienced that, for those of you who've experienced that kind of brokenness, for those of you who are living with that kind of sin, whether it's hidden or it's out there for everybody, it, it, it just, it, it takes away all of our moral authority. We no longer have an opportunity to be the people that God called us for be, to be. Now, because we're humans and because we're prideful people and selfish people, a lot of times we, we, we pretend that that didn't happen and that no one saw it. And so we live like it didn't happen, except like in the, the case with David and Bathsheba. He's a king. There's servants everywhere. His whole kingdom knew exactly what happened. He could have pretended all day that he was this noble man. In fact, he did. He pretended for a long, long time that he was this noble man and that was no one could see it. But everyone knew that he no longer had anything to say. And so we have to be people who are called to live out our convictions. And that means that we have to strive for holiness. We have to strive for purity. And because we're humans, we're going to mess up. We all have sin. We all have brokenness. We all have hidden, sh- all have hidden sin. So we can't be self-righteous about it because that's not going to work. But we also can't pretend it's not there and keep it hidden. We have to be people who walk in the light, who own our garbage, 
who own our sin, who own our brokenness. Because once we sin, we go, oh my goodness, this is my stuff. This is my garbage. And God is meeting me in that and forgiving me in that and healing in me in that. Then I can walk a little more gently and regain some moral authority in the areas of our influence. And boy, does this world need more people with moral authority. So this deep wound one reveals our moral authority. And the reason why I wanted to start there is because the next thing that happens in the story of David and Absalom is where everything goes sideways. Let me see. Um, in the very next chapter, and I think we're in chapter 12 now, um, David, I mean, Absalom um, has this encounter with David, I mean, with um, his older brother, Abnom. Abnom is the oldest son. He's the heir to the throne. He is handsome. He is strong. He is the firstborn son. And think about it. Every single thing that he would ever want, he gets. No one has ever said no to him in his entire life. Well, Absalom's sister Tamar is beautiful. As beautiful as all get out. And Amnon has this huge crush on her. And not just a crush like, hey, let's go to a dance together. Like the sort of crush where he's so filled with passion. He's like, I need to sleep with her and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And one of his buddies goes, hey, here's the plan. Pretend you're sick. Tell her to make some chicken noodle soup and come to your house. And then you can like, you can have your way with her. And he's like, that's a great plan. And so he says, hey, uh, hey, dad, can you have Tamar come to my house and make you some chicken noodle soup because I'm not feeling well. And he's like, sure. So sure enough, the whole plan works perfectly. She goes to his house. She makes chicken noodle soup. Amnon sends everybody out of the room. And sure enough, right, he rapes her because he is the strongest, oldest son to the king, and he can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. And so he takes advantage of the situation and, and rapes Tamar. And what the worst part is, is when he does this, all of a sudden he's, he's not like, oh, that was amazing. You're beautiful. Let's get married and let's start a whole life together. No, he's like, all of a sudden, all the love that he felt towards her is now filled with rage. He hates her and he kicks her out of his room and says, I never want to see you again. And now this king's daughter, who's been defiled by her brother, has no place. There's no place in her society or culture for her to be. And she is destitute. She shaves her head and she rips her clothes and she is destitute. Well, Absalom, her older brother, gets wind of this, and he is furious, and he takes her in, and he goes to his dad, and he says, Dad, can you believe what happened? You need to stand up and do something. Actually, he doesn't say any of that at all. That's how I imagined it would be. But what's interesting is this is David's response. Um, it says this in 2 Samuel. It says, when King David heard about this, he was furious. And that's the end of the chapter. He was furious. His oldest son raped one of his daughters, and his other son, coming to his defense, brings the whole thing up, and he is furious. The end. And Absalom, from that moment on, goes, you know what? My dad, who is supposed to be the defender of our family, who is supposed to be the defender of what is true and what is right and what is noble, he abdicated his responsibility, so I need to take it um, under, I need to be now responsible for that. And what's interesting is, we all need a defender. We all need someone to stand up for what is right. The world is crying out for people to stand up for what is right. And because so many of us have given up our moral authority, right, when, it, when, when now we're confronted with a situation where the poor and the oppressed are being taken advantage of, we go, oh, we're furious. But we're not quite sure how to engage in that because we haven't done the own work to deal with our own garbage. And all week I've been wrestling with this. I'm, I'm so, um, I'm just nauseous about my role in all of this. I mean, we're a middle-class church in a wealthy area. 
And the world needs a defender. The world needs people to stand up for justice. But I think for us, and, uh, and for us corporately, but for me personally, I'm like, I'm a middle-class white man who has all the privilege in the world, and I'm not willing to deal with my own racism or sexism or classism or homophobia or Islamophobia or all the phobias or all the things. I'm like, I like my nice little world. I have my quiet time, and life is great. And when things happen, I'm furious. But I don't think that's what God has called us to do. God longs for his people to be the defenders of what is right, to, bring, to be the people who bring justice, to stand up for the poor and the oppressed, which means that we must do the hard internal work to wrestle so that we have the moral authority to deal with the awful things that are going on in our community and in our world, because just being mad is not good enough. And what happens is people who have been wronged, people who have been oppressed, all of a sudden, when they realize that the power structures that be are not doing the job, they now take matters in their own hands. And that's exactly what Absalom does. Absalom goes, you, my dad, you suck. You are not doing what you were supposed to do. And so, you know what? I'm going to take matters in my own hands. And Absalom is this devious guy. For two whole years, he doesn't do one thing. He just lives like life is normal with his sister in his house. And uh, two years later, he throws this big party for all of his family. He says, Dad, I want to invite all the brothers and sisters to my house. Come, everyone come to my house. This is going to be super great. And David's like, this is great. I'm kind of sick, so I'm not going to come. But yeah, everyone should come. And so he has this huge party. He gets everyone totally loaded, and everyone is super drunk. And Absalom goes, and he murders his brother right there in front of everybody. I mean, can you imagine just the guts to be like, yep, my dad couldn't do it, so I'm going to do it. He murders Abnon the oldest son, the heir to the throne, he murders him. And that, that's a pretty big offense. And so even Absalom knows that. So he gets out of town and he runs away. And David, I mean, he's just this wreck of an old man. You just see the, 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 the trail of his life of just this poor decision that ruined his moral authority. And now he's watching his family crumble. And he goes, his oldest son is now dead. The next son in line is now fled. And he is just heartbroken. And what I realize is these deep wounds that we have, we all get this. We, I think most of us get our brokenness. We get our deep sin. We get our deep um, perversions. We get all that stuff. And we get that, our need for justice and our defenders. But I think all that is bad news because what it does, but it points because it's bad news because we know that we need uh, reconciliation. We know that when we are estranged from people around us, that is not how it should be. We long to be in relationship with each other. And David, even though his son has done everything wrong, has done all these awful things, David longs to be in relationship with him. And so what's interesting, so, so, so Absalom flees. Now Joab, who ends up killing him, that's where we are now. We're now in verse 14, uh, chapter 13, verse 39. So Absalom flee, excuse me, flees. And it says this, And King David um, longed to go to Absalom, for he was consoled, because he was consoled concerning Abnom's death. Now Joab, son of Zariah, or whatever, knew uh, from the king's heart that he longed for Absalom. What's interesting is no matter all of the death and destruction that's happening, especially in a family system, there's this weird longing that parents have for their children and that children have for their parents. David longed to be close to Absalom. <coughs> And what's interesting, this is a long time ago, but there used to be a show called Ricky Lake, and it was like during the daytime, uh, dirty, you know, the Jerry Springer show was kind of in that genre of, of movies, uh, of TV shows, and I love that kind of stuff, and so I just would watch it, be mesmerized by it. And, uh, and one time, there was this uh, episode, and it was Ricky Lake, and uh, there was these two, uh, you know, hillbilly moms, I guess. You know, like if you just imagine 
every gigantic white trash woman on the planet. I mean, it's awful, but that's what it was, right? And she was um, screaming obscenities. It was this mom and the daughter, and the daughter had to have only been, you know, 12 years younger than her sort of thing. And it was just like this picture of horrible dysfunction and awfulness. Like, it was like the dregs of culture. And I could sit eating popcorn like, I'm doing all right, you know. And, um, and this mom and this daughter, they're screaming, screaming at each other, obscenities, obscenities, obscenities. And finally the daughter just breaks down and goes, Mom, I just want you to love me. Like, that's it. And the, do- and the mom's like, I do love you. And they have like this moment of like, this whole lifetime of estrangement and dysfunction. And all of a sudden, the, the daughters cry, I just want to be in a relationship with you. And the mom's like, yes, that's what I want. And then they hugged, and it was great, probably forever and ever. Actually, probably wasn't. Who knows? It was Ricky Lake. <laughs> but what's interesting is that is our heart. We want that. And I think of every fight I've ever been when, with, with my parents, every fight I've ever been with my, with my spouse, with my kids, with my friend. I don't like to be in conflict with anybody. I feel conflict, I feel angry, I feel upset, my, my, my pride gets damaged, but I know at the core of my being, I want that to be reconciled. I want their, us to come together. And what's interesting is almost everybody that I've ever been in conflict with, they want the exact same thing. But it is brutal how our pride ruins any chance for reconciliation. David's heart was for Absalom to come home and to be with him, but he's the king. You know, he has, he has to save face or his own pride or whatever it was. And what's interesting is in, at the, in the middle of uh, chapter 14, um, Absalom ends up coming back home. He comes back home to be with David and, uh, and lives outside the city gate. And, uh, and David makes this clear. But King David said he must go to his own house and he must not see my face. Awesome. Boy, that works, right? So here it is. Joab does all his work so that Absalom can come home. And David's like, great, he can come home, but I don't want to see his face because I want to make sure that he knows that I'm still the dad and he's offended me. Gosh, what an awful thing. And we must realize if our heart is for reconciliation, then we got to own our pride. we got to own our anger. we got to own the things that are preventing us from simply crossing the threshold and moving towards reconciliation. The most incredible thing about being a Christian is that we are people who follow Christ. Christ, right, God is our Heavenly Father who is perfect, who has done no wrong. We all live in sin and rebellion all day, every day. And God can just sit and fold his arms and goes, you are idiots. Come back when you're ready and you bring, make amends. And he, could, he has every right to sit in heaven and do that. But instead, he knows that we are such punks that he ends up giving up his pride his authority, his place to come to earth, to be incarnate, to make a way for us to be in relationship with him. And so if we are Christ followers, it is on us to die to our pride and to move towards reconciliation. All right, we're almost done. So this deep wound that we have in our family dysfunction reveals our need for moral authority, reveals our need for a defender for justice, reveals our need for reconciliation, and it, it reveals our need um, for, for an honest assessment. All of us need people in our lives who are going to hold the mirror up to us. I don't know how I parented. I'm not that good of a parent, but the one thing I am proud of is that somehow my son feels like he can sit to me and go, you're the jerk. You're Culpepper in this situation. And he knows that I'm not going to rip his face off. I do lots of things horrible, but he does know that he can hold the mirror up and say, Dad, what is up with this? And we all need people 
who are going to hold up a mirror to our lives. Joab had people, right? We all, have, we all have, surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear. And Joab had those people. And uh, when he was rebelling from David, one of his advisors was like, you know what? You should just keep... If, David, your dad's already mad at you. Um, you're already running for him. So this is your chance just to take over the kingdom. So let's just, let's just go in and take over the place and sleep with all his concubines and shame your dad. And let's just go for it. And he's like, yeah, that sounds great. And that's what he does. And that's when the wheels start all coming off. But what's incredible about David, for as dysfunctional as he is, for I think as an awful dad that he is, for someone who has very low moral fortitude almost his entire life, what David does, which is so incredible, is that he is always open for honest assessment. David, who is the king, he always got from the very beginning that God, that Yahweh, is actually the king. He may be the king in position, but God is the one who's ultimately the king. And so when people came to David and said, listen, you, I'm going to hold the mirror up to you, David didn't freak out. When David slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah, and the prophet Nathan came to him and he said, you have sinned. I love this, this passage. This is what Nathan says to him. He says, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Talking about Absalom, this is a prophecy. And for what you did in secret, I will bring into broad daylight before all of Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David is a huge lawbreaker. He breaks the law all the time. But what's unique about David is he actually allows the law to break him. When someone holds the mirror up and says, you have done this, this, and this, and this, he could have killed Nathan right there on the spot, said, I'm the king, you're nobody, no one tells me what to do. And instead he goes, oh my goodness, I have sinned against the Lord. Later in the story, when, uh, when uh, Absalom's dead and David just throws a temper tantrum, he just wails and freaks out because his son is dead. Joab says, listen, what are you doing, David? These men of yours who have bled, who have fought and been with you and been loyal forever and ever, you are, you're being crazy. You're killing us because you're freaking out about your son. Pull it together. And he could have killed Joab right there and said, no, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. But he says, okay. And he pulls it together. Near the end of David's life, he has this census, and he, he counts everybody up, and it was this huge offense of God. I don't fully get how and why it was, but it was this huge offense that, that he, was, he, he engaged in his pride and did this thing, and God convicts him and says, you did this awful thing. And David said, God, you can do whatever. I'm king. And he goes, oh my goodness, and confesses. And I just think, boy, what, what we can learn from that, if we are people who are open to some honest assessment, who are open to some honest feedback, we all are walking around with horrible skeletons in our closet and horrible death in and around us, and we pretend that it is not there at all. How freeing to let people in and say, oh my goodness, the, man, when you talk like that, that's pretty crushing and that's pretty inappropriate. That's mean. That's whatever those things are. Like, let people actually speak into that and let those dry bones actually go and die and let Jesus actually bring restoration and healing in us. We all need moral assessment. I mean, honest assessment. We all need it, and nobody wants it. I rarely want it. My first reaction whenever someone calls me on is I want to be, I defend myself, right? I get pulled over by a cop. I know exactly why I got pulled over. I was going a little too fast, as always, right? But we all go, oh, no, no. We all find excuses. We all justify. We all pretend that, that, that we have some reason why it's okay, as opposed to just stopping, having honest assessment, and going, you're right. I've sinned against God and against other people. 
Because when we have honest assessment, all of a sudden, the things that we've given away with our moral authority, we begin to gain back. When we have honest assessment, all of a sudden we get an opportunity to say, you know what? I do need to stand up for this thing, for this person, for this cause. I need not just be furious, but I need to give part of who I am away to this person or this situation that is desperate need of it. When we have honest assessment, all of a sudden we can realize there actually is hope for reconciliation and that our pride won't be the final word, but redemption will be. And the last thing is this, is that it reveals our need for spiritual formation. One of the things that I think the church has gotten incredibly wrong that I probably contributed to, unfortunately, is that we live in this world of being good Christian people means we live a certain way, we say no to three things that we can control, and we go to church occasionally. And if you say no to these couple things and go to church occasionally, then you're good Christian people. And what an awful, awful picture that is. Jesus is not interested in good Christian people. Jesus is interested in people who are being formed and being transformed and becoming more and more growing in the image of Christ. This whole mission statement of moving towards Christ, that's what we are. We are people who are always moving towards Christ. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian one day or for 70 years, there is still opportunity for Jesus to have his way in you and to form you and to reveal areas of brokenness and sin and healing that needs to happen and to have his way with you. And I love David. And the reason why it was interesting, I first start, I thought this is going to be such a fun sermon before I studied it, is because I wanted to get to this point. And this was the final point, is David is totally unique in that we have his prayer journal. David, we, we get the story of his life. And anyone could, any one of our kids could sit back and write the story of our life and be like, dumpster fire all day, every day can sit and look at David's story and be like, you are awful on every level. I don't get all of what he did. But we get his prayer journal. We get his most intimate prayers with God. And what's interesting is when we get his intimate prayers with God, we don't see someone who is full of victory and pride and nobility and self-justification. We see a broken and contrite man who deeply, deeply loves God. There's a couple of psalms that I just wanted to highlight to you. Um, one, Psalm 51. This is right after David gets busted by Nathan. Nathan says, you have sinned. Your family's going to be in wrecks forever and ever because of it. And David says, I have sinned. And this is his prayer. Listen to, the, to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For, um, oh, that's not it. Maybe it is. Doesn't matter. Right? All of Psalm 51, this whole prayer. Uh, this whole prayer of God, of him saying, listen, I am broken. I am sinful. I've been sinful from my birth. God, you have to wash me and redeem me. And only after you wash me and redeem me can I go and tell people about you. We get a picture of David's brokenness. We get a picture of one of, we, one of the pages out of his journal is while Absalom is running roughshod over his kingdom, while he's sleeping with his wives and while he is running for his life, going, what in the world happened to me? In Psalm 69, we get a little piece of this prayer and it says this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths, for there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail, looking for my God. The whole psalm is this long, long song, not of God, you're so awesome, you've made everything so great, but God, I'm slipping, I'm falling, I'm in despair. What an intimate little moment we have. 
Um, in the next psalm, it says this. In Psalm 145, this is near the end of his life. Near the end of his life, I mean, he has seen the heights of his kingdom. He's seen his kingdom almost collapse. He's seen all sorts of death and disappointment and destruction happen all around him. And yet he knows at the end of the day, God is king. He says, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him and all who call on him um, in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him and, and he hears their cries and he saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in the praise of the Lord and let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Gosh, what an incredible gift. This older man, at the end of it all, be able to know where to the decimal point goes and goes, God, Yahweh, is actually the sovereign Lord, King over all things, who I will praise. It is his kingdom that will endure forever. And lastly, in Psalm 139, the very end of it, I just love it, is this picture of spiritual formation. This little tiny prayer that I think should inform us of how we do Christianity. It's not, don't do these three things and come to church, but it's this prayer of search me, God, and know my heart. Are we open for honest assessment? Are we open for the Holy Spirit and for other people to actually have their way and to reflect back on us the areas in which we need restoration and redemption? Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And if there is, God, please cut it away. Whatever is sinful, whatever is offensive, whatever is done in secret, whatever is hampering us individually and corporately to stand up and to be the church that God needs in this time and place, to be the defenders of the weak and the poor and the oppressed, to stand up for justice, that only happens when we individually and corporately cut away our offensive ways, both hidden and in private, in private and out loud. And then and only then may God lead us into the way everlasting. So my question for you before we wrap this up, and I'd love for you to just take a little piece of paper in front of you, is just to think about what is it that you need this morning? We all can resonate with brokenness. We all can resonate with dysfunction. We can all um, resonate with this heart that longs for God to show up in a unique way in our life and in this world. And what do you need? What is going to be the beginning of your prayer journal today? Is it, God, forgive me for this, and I need healing in my brokenness? God, is it... I am brokenhearted and in despair. I, could, I barely even made it today because my life is in such shambles and I am in despair. And God, I need hope that you are alive and you are active and you are going to show up. Maybe you need to step back and realize that you are not the king of your life and that all praise and all honor and all glory goes to our Heavenly Father. And maybe you are in need of spiritual formation which I hope is the case because we as a church are people who are about spiritual formation so we can give all, God all the honor and the glory both now and forevermore. So as you think about those things, I can just make a little space for you to be quiet and write those down. And as the band starts playing, please join us in worship.